Well, if you uh, have seen this past week on Facebook, um, there was a buzz about um, an editorial written by the editor of Christianity Today, wherein he um, rebuffed uh, Christians for supporting Trump, saying that um, he didn't understand how we could uh, how we could um, argue uh, against abortion with any credibility if we supported a man who was so immoral. Well, there was a lot of feed going back and forth on that. and uh, uh, But the point is this. It doesn't really matter, in one sense, it doesn't matter who you support. If you are looking to the government to deliver you, then your eyes are in the wrong place. If you are hoping that some president is going to be um, a savior, uh, then maybe you'll join ranks with the politician who just this last week said, together we will save our world. Um, friends, the only one that's going to save this world is God. Now, you may have different views of eschatology, and all that. I really don't care. The only one who's going to make who's going to change this, who's going to transform this world, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes. And He is now transforming this world by the preaching of the Gospel, the foolishness to the world, but the power of God to those who are being saved. That's, that's, who, that's who's going to save this world. Not getting rid of all the oil companies, not removing all the pipelines. That's not to say that we should not be uh, people who are concerned about our environment, who take care of it. God put us here, and that's one of the things we're to do. We are to make sure that we take care of it. So, that being said, none of those things that we propose or that are proposed by our politicians are going to do any good at all. <clears throat> the only one who could change anything is the Lord our God. Well, Isaiah reminds us of that, you see, because um, first of all, he directs our attention to God's revelation. It's the Word that gives us hope. This happens as God holds children before us. In Isaiah 7, God instructed Isaiah to meet King Ahaz at the upper pool. And He instructed, Ahaz, he instructed Isaiah to take with him his son, She'er Yeshuv. She'er Yeshuv means a remnant shall return. The name is prophetic of a future reality. Israel had not yet fallen to Assyria, and Judah, though attacked by the Syro-Ephraimite um, coalition, was never defeated. Judah was never defeated by them. In fact, it was neither that coalition nor Assyria that sacked Judah. It was actually Babylon. And the Babylonian captivity would not take place for around 200 years. So God gives Ahaz the opportunity to ask for a sign. And with pious unbelief, Ahaz refuses. Remember God's response. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13 to 17. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? 
Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring this will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah and the king of Assyria. The signs are in male children. The ones the one's name is a sign of something yet to come. The other son is a sign himself. His name is also a sign. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. Hope for tomorrow is found in God's promises, not in anything else. In Isaiah 8, we read of another child. Isaiah draws attention to, um, draws near, I should say, to his to the prophetess. Now, all the translations do not bring out the sense uh, that Isaiah has. For example, the ESV says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, the NET, the New English translation reads, I, I then had sexual relations with the prophetess. She conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord told me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Um, the, end, the New International Bible. Then I made love to the prophetess. Uh, the New Living Translation. Then I slept with my wife. What Isaiah says is, uh, I drew near to the prophetess. Now his wife was either a prophetess or she was called that because she was a wife of a prophetess. Both, are, both could be true. Um, but the other thing is this. The word that's translated to draw near has the idea of to draw near in the sense of intimacy. Only in the case with a woman, it's to draw near to a woman for the first time. That has led some commentators to believe that Isaiah had two wives, which kind of makes sense. You know, maybe maybe Ereshu's uh, mother died. I don't really know. But the point is, it's all in the context of focusing our attention on a child. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture that God's presenting before us? A child is born. In addition, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz is first prophesied. Notice that. God tells Isaiah, take a tablet and write on it, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And then he says, um, <laughs> go into the prophet, or go near to the, come near to the prophetess, and uh, you shall have a son, and you'll name him. Mahar, Maher, Shalal, Hashbaz. And so the focus is on God's word of promise. And our hope fixates on the fulfillment of that promise word. So then we come to Isaiah chapter 9. 
um, what we just read this morning. Um, But there will be gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time. He who brought... Uh, into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in a darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Underline that. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of his father David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with the justice and righteousness from this time forth and ever forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. John Oswald summarized this chapter this way. He says, Isaiah here reaches a climax that has had its beginnings in chapter 7, verse 1. In place of an unfaithful monarch whose short-sighted defensive policies will actually plunge the nation into more desperate straits, there is lifted up the ideal monarch, though a child will bring to an end to all wars and establish an eternal kingdom based upon peace and righteousness. So this morning I want us to think about some details. First of all, I want to think about the people who are in the great darkness. Uh, Secondly, the analogy to Midian. And then thirdly, the government of the child who will be born. Fourth, the titles of the child to be born. And then fifth, the Lord who promises to bring this to pass. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do give you thanks for your great love. We pray now that you would give us wisdom and insight as we think about Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is a challenging book, um, um, but the more we think through it, the more we read it, the more we study it, the more clear it becomes to us. We pray now that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first of all, the people who walk in darkness. And in Isaiah's day, this would refer to the land to the north. So you're looking at Ephraim and the Galilee, or you're looking at, as he says, Naphtali and and Zebulun, uh, the area around Galilee. They were in constant struggle there. They, there, the area was a melting pot, pot of culture. Okay, you had Hebrews, Hittites, Canaanites, Arameans, Mesopotamians, and they all contributed to the mix. It's kind of almost like America, right? People from all over are here, and they were in our typical of darkness. They introduced many false gods, and Israel began to worship a lot of them. Therefore, false worship was prevalent, and that because it's sin, creates darkness. Well, we all got a kind of an idea of what darkness is like. 
you know, if you uh, if you want to know what your what tomorrow holds for you, you can, you know, go go online and look on the paper, and you have this astrology astrologist telling you telling you what what to expect. Is that what it's called, astrologist, right? You know, if you're born under this star and this system, you know, if you're this or that. You know, I don't know what I am. I think I'm a Libra or something, Virgo. I can't remember what I am. I guess because it doesn't matter to <laughs> me. But that's people who think that the stars, you know, uh, um, are, depict our destiny. Um, there are other people, other gods, right? Uh, we're all, we're all just, you know. Um, <clears throat> We're all the products of some pool of slime. Where an impossible chemical reaction took place, was impossible, but took place anyway, uh, where life uh, came to be out of, out of literally nothing. Uh, it just happened. You know, I, nobody knows how it happened. You know, I think it was Stephen Dawkins who said it was little green men, maybe. He didn't know either. So everybody, you know, if you understand chemistry, this is what I understand. Daniel can tell you this. Um, but synthetic chemistry, they'll tell you that's impossible for life to begin the way that they say it did. It's impossible. That's been challenged and nobody answers this one professor. He says it can't be done. Not even in the test tube. So, I thought I would start a new uh, organization getting $19 a month because you get, you know, you can give $19 a month to St. Jude, right? And give $19 a month to save those poor little puppies that they show on TV and, you know, they're abandoned. So I'm thinking of starting a new, a new uh, one, and I'm going to call it Save the Roach. Right? Roaches are as important as dogs or babies. If we all came from the same place, what difference does it make? So support my organization. We'll stop spraying roaches and we'll let them have their way. Think about it. If, you, if, uh, you know, President Trump's immoral, but the Democrats who, who promote abortion, they're not. Does that make sense? We live in great darkness. And into that darkness, light shines. And oftentimes in Scripture, God is depicted as light. His Word is also light. The climax of this light is Jesus, right? He says the true light. John writes this. The true light which gives light to everyone and everyone was coming into the world speaking of Christ. Jesus said, again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the one who came. He was, by the, he was in the land of Zebulun. The prophecy is about Him. As long as I am in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We want our world to get out of the darkness? Well, then there's only one way they're going to get out of the darkness and it's, and it's through a change of heart. We need to pray for our public officials. That's true. We want righteousness to prevail. That's true. But a heart can't be changed by external forces. A heart can only be changed by the internal working of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel must be proclaimed. And why don't people do that? Well, that's the judgment that lights come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light. 
And that's what it is. People love darkness rather than the light. But that light has shone in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first point I wanted to make to you is uh, draw your attention to was, was the promise of light. The second one is the analogy of Midian. That's kind of a strange way to um, approach, uh, to think about. Why, why does God bring up Midian? I mean, it doesn't... Think about it. How does it fit the context? Um, I can't even find it. Oh, yes. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. Analogy? As on the day of Midian. Um, what's that about, Midian? Well, if uh, you remember that uh, Judges 6 and 7, actually it goes on through chapter 8, where it talks about Gideon, right? The people of Israel had done wickedness, and um, in chapter 6, God sends them into uh, oppression under the Midianites. And um, so he also delivers them from those Midianites, and the one he uses was Gideon the Brave. Yes. (laughs) Why was Gideon when the Bible depicts him? He was in a prime prison. What is he doing? Well, he's threshing wheat. How do you thresh wheat? You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You thresh wheat out on the open ground. You know, in a place where wind can catch. But he's—you could almost imagine him. And I saw this guy do this one day. Just imagine him—he's down here like this, threshing wheat, standing up, or the Midianites, because they expect they're going to come and take the crop, right? So, yeah, Gideon the brave. And so God says, hey, Midian, uh, <clears throat> I mean, Gideon, Gideon, not Midian, hey, Gideon, I get confused sometimes with my G's and M's. Anyway, hey, Gideon, I want you to, I want you to deliver the people of Israel. So uh, Gideon says, wait, you know, if you really want to do this, you know, wet this fleece, wet the ground, gives these signs, and then, <clears throat> and then he says, okay, and he gathers about 20-some thousand men and all ready to go, and God says, nah. Can't have that many. So he begins to dwindle it down. Finally, he gets to 300. Now, Midian's, uh, Midian, Gideon's going to go against the Midianites with, with 300 men. Weakness. Right. Weakness. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, there they are on a hill and the Midianites are below. You can imagine that they were a little bit unsettled, Right? I wanted to take these jars. It was all kind of weird the way this thing happened. Well, then God says to Gideon, He says, um, Go down to the camp. Uh, take Pura, your servant, and go to that camp and just listen in. So they go down, and when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I had a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came into the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Wow. 
<laughs> Talk about an immediate revelation, you know. And uh, so then Gideon and Pura, they're us. They go up, say, "Let's get going." And they do exactly what Midian says. They come down, and who drove the Midianites away? The Lord. The Lord. Yes. They got confused. They start killing each other, fighting each other. You know, the 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 Hebrews didn't have to do anything at all. They break jars with with torches in them. I mean. Who did it? Well, it was God. So the point of the analogy is that God is the one who delivers and He does so with apparent weakness. So it is with Christ. At His nativity, He came in weakness. He lived His life in weakness. He faced every temptation just like us. He suffered and died the death of a crucifixion. But now He has risen. Now He's ascended. Now He, now, um, now he will return. But until He comes, He is conquering His and our enemies. And He is. 1 Corinthians 15 says He is putting all of His enemies under His feet right now. How does He do it? Through the foolishness and the weakness of preaching. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased, well pleased, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The message we have is pretty foolish. But that message, guess what? Resolves every tension that humanity has right now today. That message can bring peace. That message can end wars. That message can first and foremost get people right with God, which is the real problem. The real problem is that they don't love God. Every time we sin, that's our problem. We don't love God. We put ourselves before God. We, we put Him aside and say, I'm sorry, I want to do my own thing right now. That's what we're doing. That's the problem. How is that problem resolved? In the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly then, we have the government of the child born. Now notice the details of this. Isaiah says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, think of that image for just a minute. Uh, Who said Atlas, right? (laughs) You think of a picture of Atlas. Boom, right? The world on his shoulder. What's he doing? He's carrying the world. He's taking care of it. He's holding it up. The government is on the shoulders of this, of of all things, a child. The government's on the shoulders of a child, weak, and he's holding up the government. He's sustaining it. But we read also that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So, what you're, what are you looking at? The government's on his shoulder. But of the that the government is there now, but it's increasing, right? It's it's increasing. And the peace that he brings is increasing. 
And so it doesn't happen. The picture is it doesn't happen all at once. It's a process of time. The government increases and peace increases and of those things there will be no end. It's forever. Our Lord Jesus Christ brings us um, a government and peace that will not end. It's just not all here right now. But it's growing. I keep reading from Operation World and from um, Open Doors about the uh, Muslims who are converting in Iran and in other parts of the Middle East. They're converting, they're planting churches and they do it through discipleship. Okay, so somebody becomes a Christian and they make disciples and they gather a group around and it's a church. They need Bibles, they need, they need help because some of them have been separated from family because of this. Uh, some of them have been denied employment. The point is they never give up. In China, that's what goes on. In Korea, that's what goes on. The kingdom of Christ, the government of Christ is increasing. Peace is growing, but it isn't here yet. The day will come when it will be. When Christ returns and establishes His kingdom on earth. I I really believe I'm going to be resurrected and live in this body, so I'm not envisioning a, a, um, a bodiless existence for eternity. I believe I'm going to be raised from the dead. When I die, I'll be present with the Lord. That's true. But when He comes again, I'll be raised from the dead and I'll live in a glorified body. I don't know what that's going to be like. John even tells us that in First John. We don't know what, he's, what we're going to be like. We don't know. But this we know. When we see Him, we will be like Him. Alright. I'm, I'm all for that. You don't have to answer all the other questions. That's fine for me. Then you notice... On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will reign. And he will do it for the purpose of establishing that throne and upholding it with justice and righteousness again forevermore. So this child that's promised is a child that is going to do what God promised David that he would do through his descendant. And that descendant is Christ. In fact, we could take that back even to Abraham. In fact, if you want to, we could think, we could think about this. We could take it back all the way to the Garden of Eden with Adam. Okay? We could. It connects. But when Christ comes, this child who comes, his, his kingdom is going to expand, his, the peace is going to expand, and then he's going to establish the throne of David. And he's going to do it with justice and righteousness. And it's going to be forever. Amen. That's, that's what we should be looking for. Because that's the promise of God. To the Jews of Isaiah say yes, but also to us. In fact, it's more the promise is more full because we know Christ has come and we see how all the scriptures pull together. They didn't have all that opportunity that we have 
So we have this glorious revelation from God. Do you have hope in Christ today? You should. Christmas isn't about you and about trees, about Christmas presents. Christmas is about Christ. Well, then that brings us to the fourth uh, point I want to make with you, and that is uh, I want you to look at the titles of the child to be born. First of all, he's uh, the wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. As we've gone through the book of Isaiah, one of the things that we have seen is uh, Isaiah's pointing out the fallacy of human wisdom. Uh, Ahaz is a good example of that fallacy. God says, you know, Ahaz, ask me for anything. Ask me for a sign. It can be as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol. That means it's as big as you can imagine, Ahaz. I want you to do that. Go ahead. Nah, not me. I'm not going to test the Lord. You, you know. Um, (laughs) It's like, that's human wisdom. It doesn't take God at His word. That's the point. Human wisdom does not take God at His word. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, 21 to 24, we read this, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. What an image, right? Hero in drinking wine. And valiant men in mixing strong drink. Some of us knows what that looks like. But um, who justify the wicked for a bribe. <clears throat> Look around. Do you know that a man who burned an LBGT, does it FQ on it too? A LBGTQ. He took a flag off of a church, a United Methodist church. I think in Michigan. And he burned it. Do you know how much time he got? 16 years. 16 years in prison. How many people have burned American flags? How many of them got any time at all? How many, how many of them were just said, oh, well, we understand how you feel? It's freedom of speech. Yes. I uh, I tell you this in uh, with sadness. I went to Bible college. A young man who committed an aggravated rape. Do you know that he got ten years? Ten years. And because the prisons were so full, they did a two for one, so he only served five, five years. For that, sixteen for burning a flag. I just. You know, what is our world coming to? Well, that's uh, the way that we are. They justify the wicked, and I believe it really is for a bribe. bribe. You know why? Because you have this coalition of people who have an unlimited amount of money who can pay politicians to side with them. I'm sorry, that's just the truth. If that offends you, I apologize. Therefore, as a tongue 
of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as, a, as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's why I believe Isaiah makes this point when he says in um, uh, chapter 8, speaking about something else, but focusing our attention on the same deal. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, the ancient world believed that that's how people got revelations, I guess, through chirping and muttering. Um, Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the Torah, that it's written teaching, it's to the Torah, which it, it means it includes law and um, instruction. So to the Torah and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. In other words, they live in darkness and the sunlight is not going to shine upon them. I believe it's the same uh, kind of thing. They've rejected, people today reject the word of the Lord. Even Christians, even I say that in Christians in a broad category, are rejecting the word of the Lord. <clears throat> second notice, the second title, um, He's the Mighty God. <clears throat> now many, many don't believe that this is a reference to the deity of the Son. However, <clears throat> I just want to make this point of uh, that Hebrew phrase, El Gabor, occurs in Scripture and uh, there is no doubt that it is always a reference to God. So when this child is called El Gabor, um, the mighty God, he's being, he's being given, he's being ascribed deity. Now not all commentators agree with that and that's okay. They don't have to. They're wrong. (laughs) The third one, Everlasting Father, is probably the one that's most difficult for me because how is it that Jesus is an everlasting father? How is it that this child is an everlasting father? Well, um, in the ancient world, the kings all considered themselves fathers of their people. And uh, I don't think that it's in that light that this is being said. But it may under, be understood in, in the light uh, of Christ as everlasting Father is that He loves us endlessly. He's like a father in that sense. He's, um, he's someone who cares for His own. And uh, again, uh, I'll just tell you that those titles, that one appear, that's the most difficult one for me to put together in my mind. <clears throat> Maybe some of you could help me. That would be good. Then we read that he is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Verse 8. He's the Prince of Peace. Well, how is he the Prince of Peace? Well, one day, he'll be the Prince of Peace in the sense that Isaiah just mentioned before, that of his 
of his government and, and of his kingdom and of peace there will be no end. So in that sense, we can understand that he uh, is the Prince of Peace and he will establish peace over all the earth. So we, we gather that. But the other sense in which we can understand this is that Christ is the one who gives us peace. Right? Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. Now that peace, that peace is an objective standing with God. It's not, some people talk about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts and they they focus on the subjective uh, aspect of that, like I feel peaceful. I do not believe that the scripture is talking about that. I believe that if I feel peaceful, it's, it's a derivative of the objective reality that Christ gives us peace. It's finding peace in Christ crucified. It's finding the peace that, God, that Christ gives us through His cross work. That's the peace that's talking of. So if I have the peace of Christ in my heart, what is my first focus? Not me. My focus is on Him and on what He's done in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven and His coming again, by the way. We could throw it all in. My peace is found in Him, the objective living Christ. Now, do I have personal peace from that? Well, sometimes. I wish I had it more often than I do, but, you know, that's me. It's because of me. It's my reality. But it's definitely not speaking of just your own personal subjective peace. It's about the peace that God gives us through Jesus Christ. Being justified by His blood, you see. It's by what Christ has done. For God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the peace. that we're, That's how we get peace, an objective peace. We're in a peaceful relationship with the living God. <clears throat> and fourthly, I mean fifthly, how is this all going to come to pass? How will this happen? Well, the Lord's going to do it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So when they have the question, how's that all going to happen? Uh, you know what? God's going to do it. Um... Well, how's God? How's how's this all going to change in our world? How's how's the light going to shine in darkness? How's it going to say? I don't know. God's going to do it. That doesn't mean that I don't do anything, or I'm inactive, or that I sit back and say, "Oh, well, God's going to do it." You know, that's not the point. The point is for us to realize that God is going to accomplish His work through the means that He has given us. The preaching of the Word, the sacraments, you know, that kind of stuff. Prayer, right? That's how God accomplishes this work. Yes, we have responsibilities. But we are not the ones who make the change. It's the Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He's the one who accomplishes all this. He's the one who's going to accomplish everything that He's been talking about through the book of Isaiah. It's going to come because God is going to do it. Not man. You know, if you don't like your politician, you don't like your president, you don't, he's still my president. I don't care if I like him or not. Um, uh, Nancy Pelosi is a Speaker of the House. And I don't like her. So I, I won't say, though, that she's not my Speaker of the House because she is. She has an office, and I need to honor that. Whether I like her or not, it's not the issue. But is she going to change anything? No. Is Trump going to change anything? No. What if we elect a great president? I can't think of one, but, uh, you know, (laughs) even as I think back, I can't think of one. You know, maybe there were some a little better than others, yada, yada, but hey, in one sense or another, they're all the same. 
So who's going to accomplish all this? Who's going to really bring peace in this world? The Lord. Who's really going to stop the wars of this world? The Lord. Who's really going to stop the hatred of militant Islam? The Lord. Who's really going to work in our hearts to bring us to the place where we are submissive to the Lord and do what He wants? Well, the Lord has to work in us. I'm not saying we don't read our Bibles and pray. That's not the point. The point is that the ultimate change of my heart has to come from Him. And uh, Paul Tripp's little devotional for Advent, I can't remember it exactly, but um, uh, if you do not come before God, I'll say it this way, it's better. If we do not come before God as guilty sinners constantly relying on our Lord Jesus Christ in prayer and Bible reading, if, that's, if, if we are not in complete reliance upon Christ and His righteousness, then Christmas means nothing. It's just another holiday of trees and tinsels. The Lord is going to bring it to pass. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us what we need for life and godliness. That doesn't mean we have every physical need we have, but we have everything that we need to live our lives as Christians and to live godly lives. We thank you for that, especially as we focus this time of year on uh, the birth of the, the nativity of Christ. Our prayer, our God, is that we would see it rightly as it is. Um, it's been so secularized. Um, it's been so uh, transformed by materialism and secularism that it has no meaning. But may that not be true for us. If we have trees, there's tinsel and lights. Those are all beautiful things. We don't have to worry about that. It's our heart that we have to think about. Where is our heart? We ask that you would help us with that. That you would rule in our hearts. And may we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.